Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Plan B Success. We have Dr. Michelle Weiss from Boston, Massachusetts. Now, Dr. Weiss is what you call a management and leadership thinker, and she's been recognized as one to watch out for in 2021. She's also the author of Long Life Learning, preparing for jobs that don't even exist yet. And we'll talk to her about career management, about leadership, as well as some of the things that she's done in her own life as well. So welcome, Dr. Weiss. Thanks so much for having me. Absolute pleasure having you. So in your own words, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. So I, uh, I think I have a trajectory probably like a lot of your listeners where it's not sort of a straight linear path. Um, it's more been zigzagging and a bunch of spaghetti noodles. Um, I actually started out my career as a professor. I used to teach English literature at Skidmore College. Um, I actually decided to leave academia to uh, engage with a slightly more diverse learner population. And I got to do that by working with service members transitioning out of the military into civilian careers through an ed tech startup. And from there, really, my uh, a lot of the focus in my career has been sort of hovering around this intersection between post-secondary education and translating skills into the language of the labor market. Did a lot of work for Clayton Christensen and his think tank on disruptive innovation and built out a higher ed practice there. Um, got to work directly with him and write some uh, big pieces with him and then uh, put those theories into practice by building out an innovation lab at Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, did another kind of innovation lab uh, within a funder called Strata Education Network and built this thing called the Strata Institute for the Future of Work. And um, from there have worked in advisory roles. I mean, most currently at Imaginable Futures, which is a venture of the Omidyar Group. Awesome. So, you know, when we talk about future of work, I think we are right at the cusp of seeing the changes really accelerate, especially during the last one year. What is the future of work in your mind? Yeah, it's, it's something that I devoted this, this book called Long Life Learning to. For me, the future of work is about the future of workers. Less, less important to me is sort of the prognostications about you know, automation and job obsolescence, but really kind of thinking about our future as all of us contend with this longer, more turbulent work life. So thinking about the future of workers, but also noticing how inextricably tied the future of work is to the future of education. I think we tend to sort of separate them as, as different uh, challenges to, uh, to think deliberately about, but really when you think about a longer work life, you are inevitably then sort of snapped into thinking about how in the world are we going to um, engage in more seamless on and off ramps in and out of learning and work because just getting a two-year degree or a four-year degree on the front end of a longer life or a longer work life just doesn't seem adequate. So what will that look like? And so that's the way I kind of think about the future of work is how do we begin designing now for a better functioning ecosystem in which we can all move a little bit more easily as we have to navigate more job changes than we ever dreamed of? So when we look at, um, you know, the 
the evolution of higher education, for instance, right? So there was a period of time, um, let's say about 30 odd years ago, where, you know, I come from India and India is basically a country where it's very competitive. Uh, you cannot dream of uh, finishing your education without a master's degree at a minimum. And engineering and medicine were the two routes that were touted upon at any given point in time. If you want a secure career, these are the things that you need to follow. And we are here today, several years later, where there are people questioning the validity or the relevance of education as such. You know, there's a whole school of thought that believes that you don't really need to go to college versus there's another school of thought that believes that except for certain professional degrees, or if you want to become a doctor, perhaps you need uh, to go get educated. But if you're in the business of making money, really serving others, and you're not threatening their life, you don't need to. So there, there's that big, big gap in terms of thinking about education. And when it comes to work too, you know, holding a job versus the gig economy, there's changes happening there too. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, if, if just in that comparison between India and America, I think what, what we've seen in the United States is it used to be possible to achieve a fairly comfortable middle-class lifestyle by just getting a high school degree. It was possible. Um, from the 1970s, you know, really only 30% of our population went on to get a bachelor's degree. And so that signaling power of the degree was quite robust at that time. What we've seen over the last few decades is huge and vast proliferation of two and four year institutions. So we went from having, you know, maybe less than 2000 in 1950 to closer to 5,000 at one point in 2012. We're now getting closer to 4,000. That's a lot of different institutions for employers to make sense of. And then over time, we've also had over 738,000 unique credentials flood our education and labor markets. So it's a lot of different signals for hiring managers to sift through. So I think what you're hearing in that, um, that sort of chasm between those who believe a college degree is worth it and those who don't, uh, just in terms of uh, plain financial um, numbers, people who get a college degree in the US are just better off in terms of earnings premiums. There's no denying that if you actually attain your college degree, you can earn, you know, on average 900,000 more over a lifetime than someone with a high school di diploma. And we've actually seen from research that people with only a high school diploma who are not thriving in the labor market today have worse health outcomes as well. We actually see increases in our mortality rates for um, folks who both black and white, uh, men and women who only have a high school degree. So when we think about this kind of race of life, it is most certainly rigged against those who only have a high school degree. When we think about sort of the college going learner population, I think what we're noticing too is the reason why there's a question on that kind of ROI of a degree is because employers keep demanding higher and bigger credentials for jobs that never really required a college degree in the first place, because they're starting to realize, oh, by just requiring a degree, I'm actually not getting exactly the talent that I need. And so they're, they're demanding kind of increase, uh, increases in sort of their expectations, but there's only a limit to like how much we can ask for. And so that's why as you, as you kind of listen to the conversations today, there's really kind of an interest in things like 
skills-based hiring. People want to get sort of really granular and discreet about skills because we're not getting precisely the talent that we need. So the conversation has kind of shifted depending on sort of which population you're looking at it from. But um, this is kind of the, the evolution we've seen so far. And there's also the catch-22 situation with um, what it costs to go to college, oh, yeah. right? So the, there's the question about, okay, do I spend to earn it back or do I start earning today? And I think that's a big question that faces any high school senior or college-going student today. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's where you see some really interesting innovations occurring and in things like income share agreements, where if an institution is really 100% sure that the outcomes of their programs are going to benefit their learners, they can put a little bit of skin in the game and defer tuition payments and say, I believe in the outcomes of this program. So when this person graduates, that is when I will be paid back. So there's different kinds of um, innovations going on in terms of how we how we finance this. But as we think again about sort of just beyond the 18 to 24 year old learner population, we think about this longer work life. So if you're 47 and having to navigate a transition or you're 55 and you still see yourself in the workforce for another 20 years, which is really the case for a lot of our, our people today, how, where are they supposed to go, right? How are they supposed to navigate this, this way forward? And, um, and so, and how are they going to pay for this, right? And how are they going to find the time to do this? So there's a real opportunity for employers to get some skin in the, in the game and stop disinvesting from training and turning the workplace into the classroom of the future. So how do we, how do we make sure we can embed and integrate learning opportunities for our existing workforce to skill up for the jobs ahead? What are your thoughts about something like education or health being a business? Uh, education is a business. Uh, as much as people want to not believe that it's somehow a business model, it very much is. And this is something that um, Clayton Christensen has, has written about and he and I wrote about in, in another book. But uh, no matter if you're talking about a nonprofit or a for-profit institution, you're always gonna have some sort of value proposition you're delivering to the world. And in order to put forward that value proposition, whether it's, you know, if you're a small liberal arts college and your value proposition is teaching small classes and getting that intimate face-to-face -face interaction, that depends on a whole slew of iterations and cycles of resources, processes, and priorities put into place, iterating, and going through multiple cycles in order to actually generate revenue. It takes a while to figure out how you actually uh, make this business case sustainable. And the challenge in higher ed is unlike in a, in a normal uh, sort of business model where you have maybe one value proposition maybe you're trying to deliver on, in higher education, we do three. We, we try to engage in research, teaching, and the socialization and the networking of our learners, right? That kind of uh, in-person or residential experience. And those are three fundamentally different business models um, with a lot of different processes and different resources that you have to kind of pull from. And so when you actually think about why aren't maybe institutions responding to the changes in the labor market and these rapid technological advancements one of the reasons why it's so hard for universities and colleges to respond and react 
is it's not unawareness or unwillingness. It is simply that the business model is, is kind of filled with so much inertia uh, because in order to do what it's just doing today, it required so much iteration and evolution to get there that even if they see the value of some sort of innovation, innovative solution on the side, it's very hard to kind of make it work within. So um, it is most certainly a kind of business model. You know, the allure of entrepreneurship, I think is the, the strongest in current times. And the, like I said, it's an allure. So there's a lot of uh, attraction towards all the successes, the amount of money exchanging hands and all that. And there's not a lot of talk around the dark side of entrepreneurship, you know, failure, especially. And as a result, there's a, it's, it's like, you know, there's a bright light and moths getting attracted to it. And then a lot of them falling to the side. And we don't talk about that failure. What do you think about that? So I have had the privilege of getting to sort of hover in different spaces and see a lot of the different kinds of rising and burgeoning innovations out there, uh, sometimes to evaluate them, sometimes as, you know, vendors are sort of seeking for a university to buy them or from an investor perspective, people seeking funding. Um, and for me, probably one of the hardest things to observe when it comes to entrepreneurship and innovation is how much duplication of effort there is, how much overlap and sort of building in silos there is. There's so many incredible uh, young leaders and, and even more mature leaders out there who are building these incredible solutions, but because they are kind of in, in their own sort of vacuum and space, they aren't 100% sure of what else exists out there. So a lot of the work that I've done in the past is kind of behind the scenes matchmaking where it's just trying to get together one or two entrepreneurs who may not know that they're tackling the same problem, but may actually be stronger together as opposed to kind of innovating in parallel. And that's that's something, the weakness of that of our system today is something that became truly evident once the pandemic hit which is, you know, despite the hundreds of and thousands of solutions out there and the billions being poured in by private capital, venture capital, philanthropy, none of those solutions were, you know, easily stitched together in service of a job seeker who was suddenly out of a job, right? Who was in retail or hospitality and just saw their industry just get decimated. Despite the fact that we have all these different solutions out there most of our sort of lay job seekers had no idea where to turn. They don't know how to validate those solutions or how to seek them out. Or sometimes a lot of those solutions are B2B. So I think that's one of the hardest things for me to see on the sidelines is, you know, both as a funder or an investor or, a, or just an observer, just to see all of that duplication and kind of reinvention of the wheel. So I'd like to just... Uh pause a moment and take a different turn, Dr. Weiss. I'd like to learn more about you, you know, your journey. Um, are, are you an immigrant or were you born here? Uh, what, what's been your journey in the US? I was born in California. My parents had immigrated in their mid twenties and they met in the US. Uh, they were both from South Korea. Awesome. And then, you know, uh, and I've seen your educational qualifications and they're pretty strong, you know, for, and I think that's what's expected of any Asian um, <laughs> out, out here. So how much of that was 
your own reckoning to say, I really want to go and do this. And what kind of parents, uh, how were your parents with you? Yeah, it, uh, I had, you know, uh, sort of typical immigrant parents in the sense that education was sort of the most important thing to focus on, right? Um, that it was, uh, it was the reason why they had, you know, decided to, to move to the U.S. Um, and they valued it over everything. Um, so, uh, so for me, there wasn't really a choice growing up on uh, what to focus on. It was just, it was sort of in that mode of constant high achieving, you know, just uh, excel. Uh, what I found was that was really fascinating is it wasn't until I was close to being done with my PhD program that I started to kind of question. I should have known kind of prior to finishing my PhD program when I started to look into like architectural programs <laughs> that maybe maybe I wasn't 100% focused, but I still kind of decided to finish it because I've, I had put in five out of the six years required for my, for my PhD. Um, but it wasn't until later when I was finally kind of in it and serving as a professor and, um, and learning from my students that I realized that something was sort of missing where I was doing everything to kind of check off all the boxes to go for tenure and to, you know, and, and to achieve that too. But I, I was missing sort of that sense of curiosity and passion. And I kind of looked at my colleagues who would spend every waking second that they had free to write their research, to, to kind of move to their research. And I didn't feel that uh, from, from um, you know, what I was doing at the time. And, and it was only until I, I started working with service members, because I knew I wanted to work with a more diverse learner population. And once I was, you know, building specifically for um, these service members and veterans, that's when I really kind of first discovered what it meant to be mission-driven and mission-oriented. So it took me a while just because I think I was in that sort of achieve, achieve, achieve mode. Uh, but thankfully, I found, I found my way later on in life. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. So one thing that I do see, you know, when I go and reflect back, when I look at my kids, you know, I've got a son who's a senior who's going to college uh, this year, you know, and, and this, you know, inadvertently, you always compare yourself at that age uh, with your kids. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't see myself having the level of personal clarity that he has. Mm. You know, I, I think I was under a lot more influence of the of elders or teachers of what was going on out in the world, that kind of stuff. But I see that the kids of today have a lot more personal clarity. And I don't know if it's the re if the reason is the amount of exposure that they have, um, you know, the world within their palm, for instance. But it's very different. Now, is that something that you see with uh, with youngsters? <laughs> I mean, I, I work sort of more on the working age adult side. So I, I don't have like a, a good holistic sense of, of the younger learners, except for my own children. But I mean, I think that is what I hope for them is that they, that they don't have the curiosity sort of drilled out of them through, through the educational process, which is, which is really tough, I think. Um, and this, is, you know, just connects to a lot of the stuff that I've written about and, and is in the book. Um, as we think about the structures that we need to build 
and cultivate really great problem solvers and to cultivate this kind of curiosity and uh, nimble way of thinking, it has to start from the earliest ages, from pre-K onward, but you know, especially within higher education, we do need to stop thinking about just sort of content delivery because every learner does have access to a cell phone or, or some sort of device that that can give them, you know, just the 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 direct sort of answer. But how do we actually make sure that we can take knowledge that might be housed within multiple disciplines, but you know, engage in this kind of analogical thinking where we can bring and synthesize together information and exercise judgment you know, by evaluating all those different resources. So I think that is the, the real key as we think about, as I look at my, my kids and, and, and how they're sort of moving through the day, especially through remote learning today, you know, all of our incentives are based around kind of time and seats, credit hours, right? It's, it's, we're not actually measuring learning uh, in the way that, that we need to, to cultivate those, those thinkers for the future. And I really hope that we can really sort of, it's, it's that Sir Ken Robinson, you know, TED talk is like, how do we make sure we are not sort of crushing all of those natural, beautiful instincts out of them as they kind of move through the learning process. Absolutely. So what all do you do under the Rise and Design umbrella? Oh, so that is my just personal um, sort of set of services. I do a, a fair amount of speaking and consulting services on the side, um, but I also serve as a senior advisor to multiple groups um, right now. Awesome. So let's talk about your book. You know, what is it about and where can people find it? Sure. It's, uh, it's called Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs that Don't Even Exist Yet. And it's available on every uh, book website, book retailer website. So you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But my publisher was Wiley. Um, and the book is really about, you know, if, if early baby boomers today are already experiencing 12 job changes by the time they retire, how in the world are we going to navigate the 20 or 30 job changes to come when just doing one job transition is so inordinately difficult? And the book is very much about how do we design a new learning ecosystem that is fundamentally more navigable, supportive, uh, targeted, integrated, and fair. And it kind of, what it does is it elevates the voices of the workers today who are or the job seekers today who are facing the most constraints in the market today and then bumping up against the most obstacles. And it's this idea if we actually design specifically for those frictions and pain points, we are all gonna benefit from this universal design. We are all going to be able to rely on this system that helps us you know, navigate those 30 changes to come. You know, there's this talk about people in there, let's say, you know, who are 50 or 45 and 50 and above, and they're at the peak of their career. You know, they have the experience. They probably uh, cost the most. And there's this talk about where it's difficult for that generation to find their next job because they're being replaced by somebody who's cheaper. Now, what, any tips for, for people in that particular realm as to how do they survive in a competitive job market? So job discrimination is real. Uh, I, I, I show some data from some 
research scientist who did this massive um, survey where they sent almost 40,000 job applications. Um, what they did was basically rewrite uh, the same one same job transition for three different, they basically turned that same person into three different people of uh, different ages. And they realized just, you know, looking at that kind of control trial, how, how much harder it was for older uh, people to actually attain the jobs that they were interested in. Um, so uh, the, the challenges in the US, we, we don't uh, allow, it, it's actually not legal to, to hire based solely on competency. It would make sense to kind of democratize the process and for people to be able to demonstrate their proficiency. Uh, but it can only be one, one part of the hiring process. It cannot be the sole determinant. Um, so you see a lot of different kinds of hiring managers playing around with different sorts of pre-hire assessments. I think the, the hope for the future is that because we are realizing that we are losing highly skilled workers in this process, there's just an incredible amount of churn and waste in, in general in our um, in our labor market. And we have all these false assumptions like older learners are harder to, you know, train for new work um, or they're hard, you know, they, they lack the digital skills necessary for the future of work. There's all these kinds of myths out there that haven't actually been debunked or proven um, through data. So there's a real opportunity for researchers to do more there. But in the meantime, for the workers who are finding themselves kind of butting up against um, these challenges, you know, I think when we look at the innovations out there, some of the most promising ones are around different kinds of apprenticeship models where it's almost like these try before you buy models where employers get to try out these, um, these people to sort of see, do these people actually have the skills that, that I need? And, and they're getting exposed to a talent pool that normally might come from backgrounds or colleges that they normally would overlook. So they're, they're, they're providing this kind of blinded platform that is more performance-based where a job seeker can prove that they know what to do. Um, so they're, so the, the things that kind of get me excited are some of these different kinds of hiring platforms that are trying to blind the process. They're removing people's last names. They're removing uh, the schools they went to. They're removing the years of experience um, and just making it about the work. Um, and it gives the employer that perspective of, and that insight into, oh my gosh, why wouldn't I hire this person? Uh, because they do exact, you know, it's, it's, it's high level of quality. You know, they can actually tell by the task that, that this person can do the job. So those are the things to look out for. And I, and I kind of walk through a couple of those different options in the book. Awesome. You know, talking about schools, one more question that I'm really curious about uh, with your background and everything is, you know, we rank schools based on several different uh, categories. And like, you know, the Harvards and the Stanfords of the world generally always consistently rank higher. And I think uh, a part of that ranking system is also due to the, the alumni uh, within these uh, schools and how closely knit are they and how well-maintained are they. And for some of the lower level schools, you know, my experience has been, I haven't seen that kind of close-knit alumni organizations where, you know, you could have somebody graduating from a top tier school and going out. And if they find 
somebody who's been through the same school, let's say even 30 years ago, they stand a better chance of landing a gig or a job. How true do you think is that? Oh yeah, I mean, we can't underestimate the role of social capital and networking. Um, the exciting thing is that for, for folks who, you know, maybe come from families where it's not possible to develop those kinds of professional networks and connections just by virtue of the fact that you were born into it. Um, there are these really innovative programs like Climb Higher and Co-op and Project Basta and Braven where they are trying to help first-gen learners, minority learners really build up their social capital and understand how and when they can leverage their connections because this is a practice that uh, is sort of tacitly assumed for more affluent families. Or, you know, it's kind of built into the culture, whereas for younger or um, you know, sort of more underestimated groups, uh, this is this is something you have to learn and practice. Um, so, Climb Hire is an example. The CEO realized from LinkedIn data that you're nine times more likely to get a job through a referral. And so what she's actually done is built in referrals into her educational process. So as, as learners start to learn the skills to be a Salesforce administrator, um, which these are well-paying kind of middle skills career pathways, once they land a job at a certain company, it is on them to make sure they pull along other people from the same, you know, from their same group. Um, within Climb Higher, different cohorts they, that they refer people into their company that is kind of built into the process that they have to kind of lift up and pull up other people. Um, so social capital is, is deeply kind of critical. We cannot underestimate how sort of inequitable it is today in terms of access to it, but also realize that there are ways to practice and build this in uh, whether it's within a four-year institution or, you know, these more short burst training programs that are out there today. Absolutely. So, you know, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and we're still going through the upheavals of job losses and such. And there's a, there's a big set of us who are still looking for that next job. Any tips for them as to how to navigate their way to finding that next job during such uncertain times? Yeah, it's, it's really hard right now because the onus is on the individual job seeker to navigate this. And it really, that, that burden really needs to shift to state and federal infrastructure as well, because we actually have the data out there that can help people transfer skills from one domain to another. So I wrote um, a piece as an example for the Harvard Business Review where you can actually stitch together data and show how people have moved out of retail in the past by acquiring certain skills and moved on to really great earnings opportunities. But we make this so not transparent for, for people. We just make this so difficult to navigate. But there are data that exist out there today that can help us make these, these sort of less trodden pathways more easily understandable for anyone. But it requires a fair amount of data infrastructure help like right now I, I, I'm what is probably less discernible for people who are just kind of outside of um, workforce development or you know post-secondary education is that our systems don't speak to one another so it's impossible for us to track 
someone who has gone to this community college, taken these courses, has moved to a different state, has worked at three, three of these different companies. We have no way of kind of tracking these people. Um, in the same way that we've always kind of aspired to some sort of electronic medical record that is a portable record of everything, you know, we have had and gone through, we lack that. We don't have this kind of um, learner record that we can sort of point to. Um, so this is where I think there's a real opportunity for uh, the Department of Labor at the federal level, but also the states to kind of really help knit the data together and make this just so much more um, obvious for learners because it's it's unfair for any job seeker on their own who is just struggling to survive to figure out how to make sense of the over 700,000 credentials out there. How do they know that if they take this course or this learning pathway that an employer will actually validate and endorse it? And this shouldn't be on us to risk our own finances on. We have to again, just make this clear for our learners. Absolutely. So Dr. Wise, what's the best way for the listeners to get in touch with you? Uh, so they can go to my website, which is riseanddesign.io, or they can reach me on Twitter and LinkedIn at rwmichelle. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for sharing from your experience here and uh, you know, going through so many controversial topics too at this point in time. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you.